How much do you know about the law? If you're a leader in an organization, having a base knowledge about how to limit your liability is prudent. Today, three current hot topics in employment law and what you need to know. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 168. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. This is a weekly coaching show to help us all be better leaders through improved communication, human relations, and personal leadership. And I'm so glad that you have tuned in for today's show because today we're tackling a topic that is one of great importance to really every leader and manager, but one that a lot of times we don't tend to think about, unfortunately, until we are in hot water. And that is how to navigate some of the legal issues that are out there that are realities regardless of where you are and what jurisdiction. Uh, But as a leader, a lot of times uh, I run into uh, business managers and leaders who just don't have even a general framework of just some important things to know about the law. And so today we're going to attempt to rectify that. Now, I do want to say up front here that because of the nature of law and the way things are in the world, uh, this is this particular episode will, uh, will be most helpful to those of you who are in the States, and that's about three-quarters of our listening audience. Uh, for those of you who are outside of the States, you know, this I would still encourage you to listen today. One, because I know many of you who listen to this show, even if you are outside the States, do business with entities here in the States. And so knowing our legal system and a little bit about what concerns that we have here in the States will be of value to you. But secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, I hope that you'll listen with an ear of what are the things in your country or jurisdiction that you should be educating yourself on, because many of these things have implications in other jurisdictions as well, too. And I am really thrilled to be able to welcome our guest today. And our guest is someone I have known for many years. Her name is Laura Schiesel. Laura is a partner with Mulliver Connolly and a licensed attorney in Arizona and California. And she focuses her practice on general business matters, including corporate litigation and counseling and labor and employment matters. And uh, I am really thrilled she's here because Laura and I have known each other for years. And in fact, Laura was my boss many years ago, right, Laura? Yes, that's right, Dave, many years ago. And I was a fabulous employee, wasn't I? You were absolutely <laughs> fabulous. <laughs> you know, we had and a lot of fun working together. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, you know, we've kept in touch and, and been friends for many, many years, and I followed your work, and I'm just so impressed with what you've done. And uh, and you're here today to uh, give us a little bit of the landscape of how to appreciate the law. And um, I know we have to uh, say a disclaimer here up front before we begin. So let me uh, let me mention that. So, you know, Laura is here to help us with some general information. So this conversation today is intended to provide some general information that Laura's prepared on this subject. So it is not provided, or I should say it is provided with the understanding that she's not engaged in rendering you legal accounting or professional advice. So although she's prepared it, 
This should not be utilized as a substitute for professional or legal advice in specific situations. So if you need legal advice or other expert assistance, uh, we would encourage you to engage the services of a professional or an attorney in your jurisdiction. And if you happen to be in California or Arizona where Laura practices, you can certainly reach out to her and we will uh, absolutely let you know how to get in touch with her afterwards. But uh, but use this for your own general information and not for legal advice. How's, how's that, Laura? Does that cover us? That sounds perfect. Thank you, Dave. And uh, before I get started, I just want to thank you, Dave, for inviting me on your show. I am an avid listener. And uh, likewise, I'm very impressed with your career and everything you've done over the last uh, 10 plus years. So thank you for having me today. And I appreciate the disclaimer. And I'm here to just kind of provide an overview on some of the issues that I think are most important as we round up 2014 and head into 2015. And hopefully I can be of some uh, help in with your listener base. The first one that you've identified that we should look at is social media. And, um, and you know, this is something that all of us are navigating in new ways. And in some respects, I know a lot of this is still being figured out. But I was really interested to hear from you when we were putting together our notes for this conversation that LinkedIn, in a lot of ways, is becoming um, kind of an interesting area for companies and organizations. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about just what what leaders should be thinking about around social media and then LinkedIn specifically. Well, absolutely. And thank you, David. Social media, I think, is on every employer's mind and employee. And as I know, you, you have your podcast probably on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook. These are all forms of social media. I think as, as we go into 2015, uh, most employees and employers have either company accounts or personal accounts in any one of these uh, social media forums. So I think the first issue is what is social media, which as we know is, can be one of many things. Um, it, you've really tailored your question, and I think a lot of employers are, are tackling this issue as far as LinkedIn accounts. So uh, there are many companies out there that use LinkedIn databases to gather information. So the employee will have a, you know, a database of their own contacts sometimes, as well as company contacts. Um, so before, and, and you know, I will t chat a little bit too, Dave, about uh, I, I highly recommend every employer, they don't have one already, have what I call a social media policy. So I'll talk about that a little bit too if we have time. Okay. But the first issue, for as far as LinkedIn data, the question becomes, and it's probably a familiar one, who owns this data when the employee uh, departs from the company by way of termination, resignation, layoff, whatever that departure is. And it really comes down to, and, and by the way, case law is, is all over the map on this, and we don't, you know, it's, it's a gray area. But I think, you know, as is the issue with most legal issues um, when it comes to employers, the best thing to do is have a good policy and procedure in place to protect yourself. So one thing that an employer can do is own, actually own the LinkedIn data. So when the new employee comes to the prospective employer and starts his or her first day, they have a new LinkedIn account, and that, and that LinkedIn account is either tied to the company's email address and or has financial uh, strings to the company. So the company pays for that account. It's a lot easier to later on assert that you own that data if, in fact, all of the data came from the employment relationship, so it started on day one that that employee started the company, and two, uh, you know, that employee was using his or her company email account, and it was financially tied to the company. Now, the, the problem, um, 
Yeah, the problem becomes when you have what we call mixed use. So the employee starts her first day and she has a LinkedIn database from her other company uh, and it's already populated with contacts. And then she starts filling up that LinkedIn database with new uh, company contacts and confidential information. That's where it becomes a little bit more problematic. And this kind of goes to what I uh, said initially is it's good to have a policy so that, you know, and that can be either an addendum to an employee handbook or a standalone policy. I recommend standalone policies if possible. Um, and in that addendum or policy, there can be an acknowledgement as to what happens to that data. And, you know, typically that acknowledgement can read, uh, you know, the, exactly what, what the company intends to happen. So, for example, uh, when the employee leaves that company, he or she can turn over their LinkedIn contacts and uh, if the employee consents. So really what's at issue here, and, you know, I think, Dave, you would agree, it's the tension between privacy rights of the employee and the employees, or I'm sorry, employers, confidential or trade secret information. And I suspect it is often the case. I mean, I just think about my own career and social media accounts and LinkedIn specifically, where an employee does bring a existing account to a new employer. And I never even thought about it until you and I were talking about this, Laura, of you know, that information that you then or connections you make as part of your professional capacity with that organization. Um, I would just go on the assumption that those were mine on my LinkedIn account and that those are my connections. Um, and, and I think you point out that that's not necessarily the case if, and that, that if, if neither party has made that clear, there hasn't been an understanding that that's the kind of thing that can really get you in a gray area as an employer. And, and I suspect that this becomes really relevant in, in the types of positions people would have that would be, you know, building network like a sales role or PR, you know, that kind of a role where where a person's network really is a big part of the value that they bring to the organization. Yeah, that's correct, Dave. And as I said, this happens a lot in uh, consulting firms or staffing firms or firms that are heavy uh, recruit recruiting and sales positions. So that employee may have, you know, what we would call a virtual suitcase of the company's confidential information once that employee is there for a period of time. You know, there's a lot of add-ons now in LinkedIn, LinkedIn Recruiter, and a couple of other things that companies are using. And I think LinkedIn is also trying to figure out a way to partner with employers to protect more of this data for the employer side. But, you know, it really becomes, I think you make a good point. If, if you, Dave, started that company and you've had 10 years of building your LinkedIn database, and you want to continue maintaining that, that database and add to it, um, it, it makes it hard for an employer to, to assert rights to it. And more importantly, I think, you know, the issue always becomes, how do you enforce it? So even if you have an employee sign an acknowledgement saying that they will turn over or they will deactivate an account, um, you know, you always run into the situation where the employee fails to do so. So, you know, it's, it's a lot of what we when we talk about best practices and procedures and policies and even an acknowledgement, um, like I'm speaking about within a social media policy, these things are, you know, in large part deterrence. So we're trying to deter employees from, you know, essentially taking company confidential data. So that's, that's a big issue here, you know, and, and on a social media front, I think in, We've seen a lot of this come through the National uh, Labor Relations Board, probably starting in about 2011. Uh, the general counsel of the NLRB actually issued some advice memorandums 
on what uh, a respectable social media policy can look like. And maybe, you know, Dave, I know sometimes you put things in the show notes. I'd be happy to kind of drop a link to at least what the NLRB has said. Here's, here's a good idea. Here's what we think complies with applicable standards and laws. That'd be um, fabulous. As far as, as, as what you can do for social media. Because the issue, really, when we talk about social media, uh, especially if, you know, what can that employee post on his or her Twitter or Facebook? Usually these cases involve that, the, those types of uh, social media. Um, and if, if what that employee is posting is what we call protected and concerted activity. So uh, let me backtrack a little bit. There's something called the a National Labor, Labor Relations Act, or the NLRA, and some, sometimes employers or even you know, individuals have a, a misconception that that only protects things like unions. Yes, it does, and in, in large part, that's what the NLRB was formed for and still protects today. However, Section 7 rights uh, can apply to private employers uh, who don't have unions. And with Section 7 basically says that employees can gather whenever, wherever, and talk about things like wages, um, workplace conditions, things of that nature. So, as you can probably put the pieces together, Dave, what I'm talking about is if what they're talking about on their Facebook or on their Twitter or whatever that social media account is has to do with work conditions, wages, things of that nature, it will be protected under Section 7. And so a lot of the litigation up front, which is why the NLRB stepped in and did these advice memorandums, had to do with employers firing employees because of Facebook posts or Twitter posts that they didn't like mm. that were disparaging. That, right. They, as you can imagine, were disparaging to the employer, you know, um, defaming the employer. Um, but keep in mind, if that post, especially if they were talking about other employees, how they were gathering around, they all felt very strongly about in a policy or whatever it may be, that was protected. So when that employee was terminated, it was a violation of, of her Section 7 rights. Got it, got it. So, so you know, um, this is a lot, of, a lot of information download, but I think you see where this is going, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is good mm-hmm. because I think part of the direction here is, you know, have a social media policy. So, you know, obviously that's going to vary with each organization, but having a policy is key. So having this conversation and setting the expectations up front with employees when they come on to your organization is is certainly a best practice. And then it sounds like another good practice would be, we'll put the link like you mentioned in the show notes for sure, for people who don't have that policy yet, that that may be a starting point for thinking about what are the kinds of things, you know, if you're running a small or medium-sized business or if you're a, uh, you know, one of the chief people in your organization of thinking through, okay, here's the kinds of things that I want to be thinking about when we, uh, you know, when we implement something like this. Absolutely. And, you know, and even if it seems premature or you're not at the stage in your employment setting to have have a policy and have, you know, it's say you only have five to ten employees. Just setting expectations generally about, you know, within within management for for certain about what employees can and can't be posting on their social media sites. I mean, generally, like we said, if it's discussing wages or working conditions, it's protected. Um, but if it's just, you know, employees griping and there's no, it's not made into any uh, or relation to any group activity among employees, things like that are not protected. So, you know, just generally knowing um, the do's and don'ts as far as uh, social media, too. Okay, good. So let's uh, let's tackle our second uh, topic here, and that's 
uh, different employee classes. And I know that th- this has been a hot topic in California, and I know it's a hot topic in other states too, Laura, which is this distinction between what's an independent contractor and what's an employee. And I know a lot of organizations have gotten in the hot water over this and have, and and state agencies have come after people. Um, first of all, can you just frame for us what the difference is between that for those who may not be familiar? Sure, absolutely. And Dave, you know, I'm, I'm glad we decided to chat about this today. Uh, it's a definitely a hot button issue, um, certainly as we go, go forward into the next year. Um, it's a new, there's definitely a new era of increased enforcement in this, in this realm. So first, I'll answer your question. So an independent contractor, or what we would say uh, in an IRS classification as a 1099, is you know, someone who, and we'll talk about exactly what, what the uh, different tests are, but typically an independent contractor is a person who works for the company um, and may work remote in his or her own office and use his or her own tools, um, dictates uh, her own schedule. Um, does not use any company cars or laptops or any tools of the company. Uh, frequently has many people that, or many companies, that she works for. So, in other words, an independent contractor con- controls her own world. Whereas an employee, which, you know, most, of, most people are qualified as what we call W-2 employees, either hourly or, or exempt, an employee... Uh, it typically goes to a corporate office, or even if it, the employee does work remote, is using a company computer, using company databases. Um, that would be you know, a very general distinction between an employee and an independent contractor. Now, the reason why a lot of the agencies, including the Department of Labor, the IRS, Department of Economic Security, um, most of these agencies uh, are interested in issues of misclassification, in large part because once you classify someone as a 1099 or independent contractor, it's an important classification. It means that 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 independent contractor is not eligible for obviously any, you know, related tax benefits of being an employee, uh, is not, it does not qualify for certain claims, federal and state claims for uh, employment discrimination or misclassification or other issues, and does not qualify for things like workers' comp insurance. So in essence, that 1099 loses a lot of benefits and protections once that person is classified as a 1099. And from an employer side, that employer is not paying any employment taxes for that person. So it's important that this person is classified correctly. And so when I say it's a new era of increased enforcement, um, now more than ever, we are seeing these organizations uh, report to one another. So, for example, if an employee uh, or are you who, an, a person who you classified as 1099 decide, is terminated and goes in and files for unemployment and claims that he or she was an employee, you better believe that that could trigger um, uh, dual reporting. So the Department of Labor can then report to the IRS, and the IRS can then come back to that employer and not only audit that employee – but also audit any and all employees that would fall under that category. And so we're seeing more of this. And so it's, it's very important that employers are aware who they're classifying as independent contractors and make sure that if they are classifying any, whether it be one or you know, a lot more, that that person is, is being classified correctly. 
that's something that was really new to me, Laura, when you and I were talking about this conversation, when you, you said that not only can they go after the, the records and investigate that employee, but they can potentially pull everyone's classification in that organization. Um, I, I wasn't aware of that. And so that is something that I, I know that employers have gotten in trouble before because they will classify someone as an independent contractor when truly they're acting as an employee. And, uh, and, and in the economic times that we're in, state agencies and federal agencies have really been going after employers. And, and I know that the, the fines can be pretty serious uh, in that stuff. State by state, we're seeing more penalties on a statewide basis. So what we've seen, and, you know, and just to, you know, by way of comparison, um, you know, uh, California this year estimated that the misclassification of workers resulted in the loss of payroll tax um, at over $7 billion. So states are being incentivized from the national and federal level to really start these audits and to figure out what the misclassifications are and to go after them. And California has a separate penalty so not only are you going to be subject to whatever IRS penalties and Department of Labor and, and other ramifications in California, um, there was a bill that was passed in 2011, and it creates civil penalties of between 5000 and 25000 per violation. So now that's California. Other states have enacted similar penalties. And the Department of Labor has said that this is their number one issue, misclassification. And so when they say something like that, you, could, you better believe that they're investing a lot of money and time into cracking down on this issue. Yeah, and this is something I've definitely heard of happening to people, Laura. And, um, and you know, we're, we're obviously using California as an example here for a couple of reasons. One, you know, I'm in California and Laura practices in California and Arizona. Um, but, uh, you know, California tends to tends to influence a lot of the rest of the country as far as precedent on things like this. And... Um, you know, it, it, other states are doing things very, very similar to this. So if, if your state isn't exactly doing this, they're, they're doing something very similar if you're in another place. Yes, absolutely. And the trend as we go forward will be uh, both at the state and, and certainly federal level is a crackdown on, on misclassification issues. And, and I know, Dave, I'm pretty sure you, you brought up what we call the economic realities test. Um, and I'm happy to, to give a little bit of explanation on that. And that's something else that we can uh, provide, at least on show notes, um, kind of what that test looks like. Sure. And is that, of, um, is that mm-hmm. how you would determine whether someone's an employee or an independent contractor? Yes, absolutely. So there's yeah, I think that'd what we be, call common law factors, too. Yeah, that'd be helpful because I think that, um, you know, I, I know that this is something that a lot of times people really are trying to make the right choice and, and classify someone correctly. But you know, someone's brought on for maybe a shorter, medium-term project, and you know, how do you determine that? So, yeah, if you can walk us through just some of the basics of that, that'd be fabulous. Sure, absolutely. Well, it's a six-factor test, and it's certainly at the federal agency level, uh, the IRS in particular. This is a test that is is being being used. So, this there are other tests we call them common law tests, uh, whether at the for areas of Title VII and different federal, federal claims that we can use other tests. But really, and, and it's duplicative. So the economic realities test is a six-prong test. The first factor is the extent to which the work performed is an integral part of the employer's business. So basically, if the work performed is integral to the employer's business, it's more likely that the worker is economically dependent on the employer 
and less likely that the worker is in business for himself or herself. Okay, so that's factor one. Um, it, well, and for example, so if the work is integral to the employer's business, if it is part of its production process, or if it is a service that the employer is in business to provide. Got it. So again, this goes, this goes to um, control, right? So who is controlling that person? Is that person have control over his or her, her life, right? Her, her tools, her duties and obligations, um, hours worked, everything like that, or is the, does the employer have control? That's what, that's what we're talking about. Uh, factor two is whether the worker's managerial skills affect his or her opportunity for profit and loss. Mm. Okay, so that's, you know, indicated by hiring and supervision of workers or by investment in equipment. Um, this factor really focuses on um, whether the worker exercises managerial skills, and if so, whether those skills affect the worker's opportunity for both profit and loss. So you're going to see these are it's a pretty detailed test. A lot of it is you know going to IRS factors. Uh, factor three is the relative investments in facilities and equipment by the worker and the employer. Okay, so the worker must make some investment compared to the employer's investment and bear some risk of loss. Got it. Um, so, workers' investment in tools and equipment to perform the work does not necessarily indicate independent contractor status because such tools and equipment may be required to perform the work for the employer. Um, but again, this goes to control. So, if again, if that independent contractor um, has her her own tools and is using them separate and apart from the employer. Especially, especially if if she's using them not only for to do her work for that employer, but for other employers too. In other words, they're her tools, her computer, uh, her graphic design equipment. Um, you know, a, a lot of what we used to do is liken independent contractors to that graphic designer that works in in her little studio with all her own tools and does some work for company A, and then an hour later does some work for company B. You know, that's a true independent contractor. Got it, um, got and it. Fact, factor four is the worker's skill and initiative. Both employees and independent contractors may be skilled worker, but to indicate uh, independent contractor status, the worker's skills should demonstrate that he or she exercises independent, independent business judgment. So again, that person is making her own judgment calls on how to do the design or what to do and when to do it. So again, it's really a control. Um, factor five is the permanency of the worker's relationship with the employer. So is, is that person on contract for five years and set hours? That is going to look like an employee. Um, a lack of permanent relationship, obviously, and this is going to be industry specific, is going to look like an independent contractor, right? A true in, independent contractor frequently does piecemeal work or project-based work. So I'm on contract for, uh, you know, to, for the duration of this project. It's set for three months, and then I move on to something else, right? And then the last factor is the nature and degree of control by the employer. We've talked about, you know, what that means. Yeah. How much does this really, does this employer really control? Got it. All right. Well, that is, that is yeah. really valuable. And yeah, let's put a link to that as well, the economic reality test, because I, I think that that's the kind of thing that uh, any employer wants to be having in the back of their mind, especially if they're making a decision to classify someone as an independent contractor and making sure that they're, they've got their eyes dotted and T's crossed on that. Um, okay, so let's move on to the third one here, which is wages and hours. Um, and I know that this is 
this is some of this gets into like you know how you handle overtime exempt non-exempt um tell us about what what's going on with this and why do we need to be concerned about wages and hours sure absolutely and this is a good uh you know follow up to our discussion on classification and the reason being is because if you're an independent contractor uh, you do not qualify for overtime or or any other employment protections okay so things like the fair labor standards act which covers lots of employees, every employee that's a W-2 for the most part, um, will not cover or protect independent contractors. So again, this kind of you know, dovetails into our prior discussion. Um, so that's it. Almost all individuals who receive a W-2, uh, whether that be a salaried exempt or an hourly employee, right, are covered by the FLSA. And that FLSA is a federal law, the Federal Labor Standards Act. In California, you have a whole series of wage orders and wage laws. Um, in Arizona, we do not. So this, the additional protections are afforded at the state level, but that will vary state to state. So what I will chat about today is primarily at the federal level or what we would think would be national in scope. So when we say almost everyone's covered, there's a few exceptions, right? So independent contractors are not covered and small family-owned businesses. Um, if they don't hit certain benchmarks, um, $500,000 a year, things like that, those family businesses will not be subject to the Fair Labor Standards Act. Oh, interesting. So for the most okay. part, yeah. So for the most part, um, all employees who are you know working here in the U.S. who are W-2 employees are going to be covered. Okay, so so the Fair Labor Standards Act, uh, the the main issues that we'll chat about today are really you know minimum wage, overtime pay, um, non-exempt employees basically get overtime for all hours worked over 40 in a work week, and not less than one and a half times at the regular rate of pay. So you know I'm not going to begin to give all the calculations on on how this is determined, but that's the general issue. That's the standard. And, yeah, and. Uh, wage and hour lawsuits are increasing. So this is, you know, and this is why I know Dave wanted to cover it today. Uh, we, they're up for more than 400% since 2000. Oh, wow. And That's last a lot. Year, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and last year, there were over 8,000 um, FLSA cases filed in federal courts. So, so that's, that's an increase. I'm yeah. sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, it's interesting because I know you said that generally employers are doing a good job with kind of handling the overtime piece of it. Um, so what, why the increase? What is, why is this such an issue right now? Well, right. And I think, you know, a lot of it has to do with um, not all of these, these cases in, in California, especially there's uh, meal and rest time violations. Um, so in other words, if you're, you want to make sure that when people are clocking out um, and I won't get all the details of, of California law, but it's very easy for an employer to have a policy and procedure in place um, but like I said, if you're not doing the routine audits and you're not really following what's going on in, on in the workplace, um, it's easy to have a misstep, you know, and things, I'll just give one minor issue. So employees who are attending events outside of the office, um, is it a charitable event? And are they wearing a name tag that says, I'm here with this company? That can be considered, uh, you know, it can be easily be considered uh, work, working time. So if you're not paying them for that time, now that employee, instead of working eight hours that day, has now worked 10 because they attended that, e that evening function. Okay? Or, for example, I know this happens all the time in, in every workplace, 
you have that admin assistant or, or secretary or, or receptionist who is eating lunch at their desk. But you keep bothering them, and they're answering questions for you, and they're returning emails. So that one hour, which was supposed to be their lunch time, they actually worked through. And so now that employee has worked a nine-hour day, uh, you know, and, and for that matter, he has worked a 50-hour week, but yet you didn't pay her any overtime. So there are lots of, of, of ways <laughs> to, even if you have good practices in place, there are lots of ways to have exposure. And so we want to, you know, and I just, that's just to name a few. So you want to be really cognizant of what is going on in the workplace. Um, if an employee is supposed to be at lunch or at break um, under California law, you know, and that's a, a recent decision that, you know, came down from the California Supreme Court, you need to at least strongly suggest and provide for these opportunities. Okay. It's hard to mandate an employee take a break, but um, these are all things that, you know, that under good business practices, um, it's important to at least keep a, a finger on the pulse of. And, and like I said, so the, the cases, and, you know, Dave, the numbers are, are astonishing. You know, we, we saw a 130% increase um, in the last 10 years in, in cases such as these. And there's increased review and enforcement. So that's a big part of um, a lot more oversight. So, Dave, to answer your question further, there's uh, the Department of Labor, um, has added a lot more what we call wage and hour investigators. And so you have enforcement staff that's actually looking at these issues. And so there's an emphasis on not only uh, misclassification, but in all areas of wage and hour. And, you know, this can be, as, you, as we can imagine, especially if we have class actions and you have um, a lot of exposure, this is a major issue for companies. And another important prong of the Fair Labor Standards Act is that there's personal liability or, or individual liability. So, um, you know, that's something to keep in mind. You know, it's not just the corporation and it, individuals may be liable too. The other important prong or, you know, somewhat important prong under the Fair Labor Standards Act is, is actually minimum wage. And we've seen a lot of this probably on the national uh, scene, right, increases in minimum wage at the federal level. The federal minimum wage now is 7.25 an hour, so you can't states can't be paying less than that. Uh, Arizona goes up, I believe, to 8.05 uh, an hour starting on January 1, 2015. Um, now we've seen in California, certain cities have even increased. I think I, I'd have to check, but the Bay Area, San Francisco, and and uh, Berkeley and Oakland up there, I think San Francisco is upwards of $15 an hour for minimum wage. Um, so, you know, we need to keep an eye on these things because not only does that affect regular rate of pay and everything under overtime calculations, but then you get into issues of uh, what is going to be a salaried exempt employee and what is not because, you know, it, it depends on the threshold. How much is that employee making annualized? So, you know, there's a lot of, of things, hot button issues and on wage and hour, and we want to make sure um, that we are at least on, on top of them the best that the employer can be. And as we see increases in minimum wage, there are uh, issues that come with that. So I encourage all employers to make sure that if they do have salaried exempt employees, um, and obviously overtime, you know, want to make sure on the overtime side too, if you have salaried exempt employees, make sure that they're meeting all of the economic thresholds test too. You know, Laura, I, I really appreciate uh, you bringing this to us. And, you know, this is a hard topic to talk about just because, 
you know, everyone has, <clears throat> I shouldn't say everyone, but the vast majority of people out there, and I know virtually everyone in our listening audience has really good intentions. Nobody wants to get caught, you know, doing something they did, they weren't aware of. And so, you know, I would really, you know, I know some of this gets into kind of some of the legal details, but it's really hard to talk about without getting into the details. And so I know for some of our listening audience, uh, you know, they're going to hear this and say, okay, you know, that, that kind of lines up with what I'm thinking about and gives them a few ideas maybe to think of. And I know that there's going to be a few, you know, more than a few people listening who are also going to just say, wow, you know, tons of details here. I don't even know where to start with this. And I would encourage you if you are having that response to this conversation to, you know, uh, if you're in California or Arizona, you know, Laura is a great starting point for you if you're looking for someone who can help your organization to really do a look at where you are and what kinds of things you should be thinking of. And I know, Laura, you're happy to be a, a contact point for people if they're outside of uh, that those areas too, as far as just, you know, where's a starting point and where are the kinds of things to think of? And I uh, I know you've suggested that the best way for people to reach out to you would be through, ironically, LinkedIn, right? Uh, so uh, let's, um, what I'm going to do is put a link to your LinkedIn profile on the show notes so people can connect with you that way if, you, if they'd like. Um, any other way for folks to reach you or a good way for people to track you down on LinkedIn if they're just trying to do that on their own? Oh, sure. LinkedIn is perfect. And uh, we have our uh, firm, Oliver Connolly, based here in beautiful Scottsdale, Arizona. And all my information, including my firm information, is available on the LinkedIn profile. And Dave, I think you make a good point. You know, I I certainly didn't want to do information download and obviously scare people away from putting in the right policies and procedures. But I think it's, and I have, I say this to all my clients, it's much better to be exactly what Dave said. It's better to be prepared and to put the best policies in place because it minimizes your exposure. And, and you know what? And it makes it a great place to work, too. I think the more, more clients I have that uh, obviously are complying with all applicable you know, state and federal laws um, and have great policies in place and the employees understand them, it creates a great corporate culture. And you have people who are committed, who stay, and who love working for your company. So there are a lot of great benefits. I would much rather uh, be helpful and um, and give counseling up front than try to help you out when something bad happens later on. Well, Laura, thank you so much. Uh, you know, Laura is obviously, as you can tell, you know, very knowledgeable about her craft as she has been the entire time I've known her. And also, she's just got a great, warm personality and is just wonderful to work with. I, I can't think of anyone I had more fun working with, Laura. We got stuff done, <laughs> didn't we, when we worked together? Yes, we uh, did. And we had, fun, fun. we had fun doing it. And I just really appreciate you taking your time to add value to our audience here today, too. Laura Schiesel is a partner with Bolivar Connolly and licensed in Arizona and California. All her contact information will be on the show notes and you can track her down on LinkedIn. Thanks, Laura. I really appreciate it. And again, this is just for your general information and education. If you're looking for specific legal advice, you need to chat with an attorney in your jurisdiction. And if that happens to be Arizona or California, Laura is certainly happy to be a contact point for you in uh, chatting further. And as you can see, there's a lot here. So uh, definitely always always prudent to speak with someone who is an attorney if you're looking to figure out what your organization should be doing or what you should be doing personally. And Laura has also sent over a bunch of resources that I've posted in the show notes 
and things she mentioned during the show in a lot of detail. So if that's something that is of interest to you, definitely check that out. And thank you again, Laura, for providing that. And if you're like me and just, uh, you know, not a lawyer and not don't have any interest in becoming a lawyer, but you have just kind of a general passing interest in learning more about the law and being a educated person and how the world works. Uh, two resources I'd recommend for you. One is a book called Law 101. I was introduced to it uh, back in grad school. It's now, I think, in its fourth edition. And it's a it's a very straightforward book. It's written to a general audience. If you have an interest in learning more about the law, it's a great place to start. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then another resource for you is my friend Near Learner has a show called The Legal Seagull Podcast. And it's a fabulous show, just uh, just general information about the American legal system. Uh, he covers every topic around the law, not, not just employment law. So I'd encourage you to check that out. I'll have a link in the show notes as well. It's a, it's a fabulous show, and I listen to all of them. And a uh, reminder that next week, episode 169, is our next Q&A show. Have a bunch of questions already, but I would still love to consider your question too. And the topic of the show is on strategy. It is getting toward the end of the year here and time to start thinking about what you're going to be thinking about going into the new year. So uh, check that out. And if you have a comment for that show or a question for the show, go to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. And as always, the notes for this show are at coachingforleaders.com slash 168. Hey, a big thanks this week to those of you who subscribe to the weekly update sometime in the last week or so. And those folks this week are Barbara Douglas, Craig Datz, Adam Biggerty, uh, Christopher Serrato, Sereto, uh, Christopher, whatever way it is, glad to have you. Uh, Elizabeth Robinson, Lizbeth Bender, Travis Wells, Elisa Kirkland, Peter Tran, Rich Gale, Brandon Hayes, Donna Freeman, Brandon Tamandong, Bhaskar Nelapudi, hello Bhaskar, uh, Gislaine Levescu, hope I got that close, Jen Desco, Lee Hopkinson, Robin Wade, hey Robin, Cassie Bradley, Israel Revert, Brandon Bennett, Jean Holtman, Damien Pocknell, Luis Plancarte, Spencer Abelair. Uh, I, I don't think I got that, Spencer, but hey, it's nice to know you, Spencer. Chad Pracker and David Dayton. Thank you so much for subscribing, all of you, to the weekly update. I'm sorry for botching folks' names every week. I know I, I know I miss some of them, but I am just so glad that you've taken time to connect. Hey, if you'd like to get the weekly update as well, here's what it is. You'll get an email from me every Wednesday. It'll have the show notes for every podcast that's aired the the two days prior to that on Monday. So you'll get all the links from the show. And you'll also get an article from me. I'm going to be doing some new things with the articles in the coming weeks, uh, some creative stuff. So be watching for that. Uh, Probably not this week, but uh, watch for that uh, toward the end of the year here. And uh, in addition, when you jump onto the weekly updates, you will also get my guide on the 10 leadership books that will help you get better results from others, including two of them that I rely on on weekly. So if you if that's of interest to you, I hope you'll join as well. Coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe is how you get access there. And uh, get your questions in for the Q&A show next week, episode 169. Again, coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. Hey, if you are in the States, 
Happy Thanksgiving to you. I am grateful that you have taken the time to make this show a part of your development. And I hope that if you're celebrating the holiday this week, that you have a wonderful time with family and friends. And I look forward to seeing you next week with Bonnie to tackle your questions. Take care.